and root to burrow. Something to dig. Uh, but burrow like a B O R O U G H. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think burrow like a, a chipmunk. <laughs> <laughs> um, Santa Claus is digging a hole. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas and welcome back to Reason Together podcast, the uh, podcast for Christians who think about stuff. And I'm Daniel Fox, your host here with my great friend Thomas Balzamo and looking forward to uh, today's conversation. How are you, Tom? Ho, ho, ho. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> I, All right. I'm, I'm not feeling the best, so <clears throat> you might hear it in my voice a little bit. I hope it's not too off-putting. To our listeners, but there's been something going around here, and yes, I kind of yeah. got hit with it twice. So I'm doing okay otherwise. If I if if I have to have like a coughing fit here, we might have to edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think our listeners want to hear that. But I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing very well. Yep. Um, keeping busy and uh, loving life, and so. <laughs> Good. Going well, yes. Um, Good. Well, maybe you need a good cold right now. That's what you need to just kind of rain on that parade. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) So that because misery loves company, and and I need you to have a cold right now. So (laughs) hey, before sob together. Yeah. Before we jump into our uh, questions, two things. Number one, I want to thank. Uh, all of our patrons who have signed up at patreon.com slash reason together. Thank you so much for your investment throughout the year and what you give. We don't take that lightly um, and how you invest in what we do here and uh, enable us to pay the bills and more. And uh, thank you so much for that. And if you're not a, a supporter, but you'd like to be, you can go to patreon.com slash reason together, sign up for one of those tier levels there. The Elite Level gets you a uh, free uh, podcast T-shirt and uh, access to the uh, to the patron-only uh, feed there or the uh, chat uh, chats. And um, so we uh, encourage you to look at that. But even if you're just listening, feel free to give us a five-star review on iTunes. That would be fantastic. We love feedback. Uh, if you've got a thought about what we're talking about or even something totally unrelated, just something that crosses your mind and you think, you know, I'd like to hear those guys batted around, uh, Reason Together Podcast at gmail.com. That's Reason Together Podcast at gmail.com. So whether I just was not paying attention very well just there or entered a slight coma, I know not, <laughs> but I I didn't catch it. Did you happen to mention the perk of the after show bonus episode? Oh, you know, I, I skipped right over that. No, that's right. If you're an elite patron, you also get the after show, which is a second show every time we record. Not quite as long, maybe a little bit more laid back, another conversation, more content. And uh, so we've got several elite patrons and uh, and just thankful for all of our patrons, all of our listeners and the feedback that you give. Before we jump into uh, our conversation for today, Tom, and just start picking things off the list, um, I was wondering, what is there? Is there one gift that you would recommend to all of our listeners? You say, if 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 I if you could buy them something, what would it be? 
If I could buy them something? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. If you could buy them something, something that you would want them to have or you'd want them to get from someone else. (laughs) Boy, there's so many ways I could go with that. I'm wondering if this is like, if you're like, like doing like a volleyball set here for me to spike in with saying you need to buy a Reason Together t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, um, no, actually, that's not what I was doing, but that, that's a good uh, thought. Or, or do you really want, like, what would what, I what, buy? What one piece listeners? of fashionable attire uh, would would you want our listeners to wear to their Christmas and New Year's gatherings? <laughs> um, okay. Well, you've narrowed it down now subtly, I might add, to attire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fashionable um, attire. Actually, that was a total pitch for our uh, our podcast T-shirts okay. there. Um, but no, back to the original question. Um, just like what what kind of a just a, a gift that you feel like? I mean, everybody ought to have one of these. Oh man, I, I, a good study Bible would be one. Mm. Um, either either print or digital. Um, but something with uh, a sufficient amount of study helps in it to help sort of prompt your your thinking and your study as you read through scripture. Because you don't have to go far. That's the convenience of a study Bible. You don't have to go far to find uh, good contextual cross-references mm-hmm. and commentary, because it's often right there. Um, I'm thinking that, uh, that's a convenient thing. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is a Leatherman, like a good multi-tool. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Good. Good. Well, that's almost like the same thing in two different spheres. A multi-tool, like a study Bible, sort of like your spiritual multi-tool yeah. in a way. Um, yeah, sure. I've heard uh, good things about, I want to say maybe it's the KJV study Bible. Maybe, I think that just might be the name of it. I know it sounds really um, unoriginal. Uh, maybe I'm not remembering the title correctly. I, I don't have one, but I've heard good things about it. Um, there's a life application study Bible. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that uh, one. Heard of that one. Good things I've about that good, one too. I've heard real good things about that one. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, I know I asked the question and I'm not honestly sure how I would answer it exactly. Um, what, uh, what one thing I would want for people, it'd probably be a book of some sort. Um, but I've been, been in a, in a few books recently and really enjoying them, but, um, I don't know that I could land on on one quite yet. So I don't know if I think of something, I'll, I'll say it later, but. Okay. Okay. You've got a number of things on our list. Um, some may just be fun. Um, others, uh, a question that we need to bounce around. Yeah. Well, I assure you, even the fun ones, there is a purpose to them all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, well, shoot. Okay. So dude, <laughs> do you, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that, that's the setup to this conversation because okay. I okay. was reading. <clears throat> I got. I got an. I, I subscribed to some things by email, and I got this article that I thought was fascinating. And I will try to include it in the show notes. Okay, but it has to do with the etymology and the history of the word "dude." Um, yeah, are you from? Are you familiar with this? I've heard over the years, like, where does that word come from? And I've heard, you know, the preposterous or whatever. And so I guess I question, does anybody, well, actually a son just recently asked me that, one of my sons. And I said, uh, I was maybe kind of shooting from the hip and I said, I would think it would, might have reference back to um, maybe a cowboy term or a ranch term, like a, like a dude ranch 
or something like that. But I don't know. Is, is there something uh, authoritative out there that tells the well, etymology? As with uh, often with, as with etymology, the way it goes is there's nothing super authoritative in every case. You can kind of almost guesstimate sometimes the use of a word and sort of find its public use in print materials from ages ago and see how it was used and what it referenced. And that's sort of how oftentimes etymologists will take a track on where a word comes from, combined with looking at the actual structure of the word uh, and the languages that were used in its day and so on. Mm -hmm. And the word dude, believe it or not, is it could... It's almost the opposite of the concept that you were bringing up about like a cowboy or someone on a ranch or someone out in the West. Yes. The the prevailing theory. Yeah. Yeah. The prevailing theory is the opposite. So I believe it could be traced back to a poem written by, if I remember right in the article, the man's name was uh, Robert Sale. And this would have been in the mid to late 1800s. He writes a poem referencing uh yankee doodle dandy right yeah mm-hmm. and to, to give you a little more history on this <clears throat> a yankee was someone from new england and strangely they were kind of the original american rednecks oh, really? um yeah many people don't know this <laughs> but originally people from new england <clears throat> were kind of country bumpkins and they were sort of known for their ingenuity and in being able to cobble together junk things into something useful and make do with the, the things they had on hand, what we might today call a redneck fix or a redneck yeah. solution. Mm-hmm. Um, though they, they might not have looked or sounded or talked like the rednecks of today, they were the original rednecks in this sense. They were the country bumpkins. Hmm. They weren't the refined hoi polloi. They weren't the metropolitan type people that you would have found in places like New York or Philadelphia or Boston. So the concept uh, in this man's poem was about a, a Yankee, someone who's a country bumpkin, and, and, and attempting to be or pretending to be someone who is more fanciful, more <clears throat> what we might today describe as a hipster, someone more metropolitan than he, than, than he is. And he would stick a feather in his cap, right? And call it macaroni, according to the Yankee Doodle poem. <clears throat> but, <laughs> um, and, and, and from my understanding of it is that the macaronis, that was a term for someone who is sort of the culturally elite hoi polloi kind of guy, the fancy oh. young man. Um, so, so that's why you see a Yankee, a Yankee sticking a feather in his cap, you know, almost wistfully pretending to be a hipster type guy, um, is is a dandy. It's kind of a joke. It's kind of a fanciful thing. So Yankee doodle dandy was the concept, uh, that I'm describing here of of Mm -hmm. a country bumpkin attempting to be some, some metropolitan guy. Okay. And eventually Robert Sale takes this concept and uses it in his poem, referring to this young metropolitan man as dudish or a dude. (laughs) Not the country bumpkin trying to be him, but the actual metropolitan dandy is the dude. Right. Ish or is dudish. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and I'm probably missing details from the articles, but, but I'll link it so you can read it for yourself. But the original concept of dude, according to a few uh, etymologists that have done the work on this, is that it, it was like a metropolitan, soft-handed kind of, you know, fancy guy. 
That was a dude. Mm-hmm. And and as industrialization happened and more people um, began, more men began to dress modern, we might say, rather mm-hmm. as opposed to being a country bumpkin, dude became synonymous with man. <clears throat> hmm. And now, today, dude, the way it's used culturally, refers to just a real manly man, right? Well, I mean, I th- nowadays, I guess I just feel like it's this... Um... It's this, well, actually not nowadays, it, it's it's a generation past now, but in my youth, it seemed more like that's, that's the, it was the surfer word. Dude. Yeah. Like it was almost filler. Um, yeah. Like, whoa. Well, or, yeah. And that's a good point you bring out because what it does is it shines some light on the fact that a single word can really change in how it's used over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's super interesting to see how it literally meant the opposite of what we, of what it connotes now, you know, and, and everything in between it's had evolutions in between then and now of how it's been used. And the same day that I read this article, uh, we were doing our family devotions in first Samuel. We, part of our family devotions is that we read through the Bible together and we were in first Samuel two uh, and verse 25. And, uh, you can look it up if you wish. The uh, The story is there about Eli and his sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, which if you remember the story, they were really rotten guys, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, the things that they did mm-hmm, were mm-hmm. reprehensible by any measure. And you find in verse 25 uh, of first Samuel two, it says, if one man sin against another, then judge, uh, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. And, and the reason why I found it interesting that we read this verse the same day I read this article about the word dude is because there is a word slash phrase in this verse that when you read it, it sounds like one thing, but it's actually another because of the way that words and languages change over time. So like in the last phrase there, where it says that they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them in modern English today, that sort of connotes the idea that the Lord is planning mm-hmm. here it, it, the Lord is going to, at some point here in the future, slay them. He would slay them. Um, you, you know what I mean? It, it reads like a like a narrative where the writer is saying, the Lord is about to slay these men. Right. Um, uh-huh, but like that's actually tense. Old English, right? The word would in Old English meant something different in this use. It's the idea that the Lord desired to slay them. Interestingly, the New King James Version captures that, uh, where it says, I think it uses the word desired. Um, but that is the actual word that's used there. It's, it's, it, it has to do with a mm-hmm. willful desire that the Lord has to slay these men, <clears throat> uh, presumably for, for what they've done. Uh, they were unrepentant, unregenerate, I believe, just reprehensible mm-hmm. men. And the Lord set his mind towards slaying these men. It was part of his plan here to deliberately slay these men. Um, so that's why I say that 
words change over time. And it's not to say that the King James is in error here. It's not to say that it's wrong. It's just that when this, when the King James was translated, uh, hmm. that was the way they spoke. And that just isn't the way that people speak now. So you could get the wrong idea mm -hmm. from this word would mm -hmm. here in verse 25, unless you did a little reading under the surface here to see uh, that this actually means God desired to slay them. Not that he was just going to at some point in the future slay them, but he had mm -hmm. a willful desire to. Does that make sense? And and, and, mm -hmm. and I've come across a number Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it I'm trying like a to helping verb yeah, in modern English. And, and, and I'm saying, trying not to be too complicated uh, with it, but it yeah, actually, that's that's the idea. Is that this this no longer means the same thing? And there's a number of examples like that um, that they they weren't they're not errors. They're just spoken in a way that people don't speak anymore. And if we're not careful, we miss things. All that from the word dude. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Dude. Dude. I think you're right. Um, yeah. And you see that uh, in the New Testament, I can recall that. I'm sure there's actually several instances uh, in, in the you know, King James translation where once you know that, you see it. Uh, if any man uh, willeth to do his will, you know, if any man desires to do his diet, uh, you know, to do his desire, God's desire. Um, you'll see that concept of will yeah. and would as a, as a desire. Um, well, that uh, actually kind of leads right. into what else we got? Uh, another question that's on the list. Because in, in that passage in first Samuel, you see God okay. is, is desirous to slay these men. Like he actually wants to, um, is what it means there. Mm -hmm. In some way, you could you could ask, was God affected by what these men did? Like, did it did it change something in him um, to where he now desired to slay these men? Like, did he not have that desire before? And then they they do these horrible things, and now all of a sudden he has a desire to slay them. And and I guess the question it brings up is is about God's emotions. So the question I have on the list is, are God's emotions anthropomorphisms? Mm -hmm. And to, let me explain the question further before we try to, to delve into it. Because there are some people who believe yeah, yeah. that any mm -hmm. reference to God having an emotion is an anthropomorphism. And if you don't know what an anthropomorphism is, <clears throat> it's just describing something that's not human as if it were human, if I could put it simply. Right, right. Yeah, giving attributes, uh, human attributes right. to something. And, and there are some who believe to, that any, any reference to an emotion of God is an anthropomorphism, meaning he didn't actually have an emotion there. It just, it's written in such a way to appear to us that he had an emotion because it's the only way we'll understand it. Now, there are some merits to that argument, though I, I don't think it's entirely correct. Um. Because it, it and and their argument really comes from, yeah. Can I can I pause here just a second? 
uh, to explain to our listeners a little bit more if they're confused on the term anthropomorphic. For instance, when um, when we read in Scripture, it says the eyes arm of the, the Lord, Lord run strong. to and fro throughout the earth, or the the you know the arm of the Lord is strong to save. You know, his his hand right. does this. Well, God is a spirit, so he technically doesn't have an arm or a hand or eyes or you know nostrils, but there but there are ways of communicating to us. Um, in a human-like way, or giving him a um, uh, the idea of a body, because we 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 relate to that and we understand it, and it puts it in a way that certainly is very right on our level as human beings that we understand that. And I would say maybe it's different, distinct mm-hmm. from personification, and that it goes beyond making him a person, but yeah, giving yeah. it a very and, human and I, body. I would hope that uh, our concept. listeners are familiar too with the idea that God doesn't change, right? Um, the, the the fancy theological term for that is immutability. Right. Mm-hmm. He's immutable. Uh, he cannot be changed. Nothing about him can be changed. <clears throat> and uh, the way that that Pastor Dietrich would always say it is that if if God could could change, that means he could get either better or worse. And if he got better, that means he wasn't good to begin with. And if he got worse, that means he's not good anymore. Uh, which is a great short and succinct way of explaining immutability. But the question really has to do with if if I can behave in such a way, like for instance, Hophni and Phineas, if I could behave in such a way that it affects God emotionally to where it changes his emotion from happy to grieving or to angry, right? How does that jive with the concept of immutability if God is subject to if his emotions are subject to fluctuation based on what men do. Yeah, um, good. There's a couple things I think you need to parse out there. Um, And one is that just because God uh, is immutable means uh, his his very nature will never change. Um, It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I think, like again, in a human way, if I'm, uh, you know, walking straight and I suddenly turn right, have I changed direction? Yes. Am I any different? No. It's just it's just the route somewhere. If I um, if I am doing one thing and I stop to do another thing, am I changing in my <laughs> nature? Am I? They say, oh, you've changed. Yeah something about you has changed. No, I'm just changing my action. Um, so we do have to detach, you know, his, his actions from his nature in the sense that I know everything he does is consistent with who he is, but it doesn't mean that he has changed in his nature simply because he does this action here and this action there. And he acts upon his, you know, he's always, he's always acting consistent with himself. Uh, so the question is, is he in any way, uh, denying or contradicting himself, that would be a change in God. Um, and then to tie it immediately to emotions, when we say he desired to do something, that might be a little far, though we see it as an emotion. Um, you know, to say, does God respond to things? Meaning, the, the the way he has things designed, if you, you know, if you sin, there is a consequence. Does that mean that somehow he, you know, his, his emotions were subject to our actions? No, our actions were subject to his whole design and he, we're going to be judged and his desire is going to be to judge the unrepentant wicked. Um, 
it doesn't mean there's any change in him at all. In fact, that just confirms really that he's the <clears throat> well, same. I think it's, that, it's that, fairly that obvious, I would hope, that exactly immutability taken to its extreme ulti- ultimately leaves God frozen in time and space. <laughs> um, he can't do or think or anything. He can't move. He can't change uh, anything about uh, how he interacts with with mankind. You know what I mean? Oh. It'd be so much less. Well, what he I, actually I guess is, I think of said, no, he always like has to ultimate or extreme immutability well, is almost yeah. like wet concrete that sets until it's completely solid. Well, now it can't change at all. It can't do anything. It's it's almost. It's almost at an impasse, and, and and I think that's why if you if you take the immutability of God to its extreme, then he can't have any emotion, right? He can't feel compassion for lost sinners. You know what I mean? He can't he can't get angry at the wicked every day. <laughs> you know he can't do anything because that would wreck his immutability, so to speak. So I think I think the the folks who think that God's emotions are purely anthropomorphic, they're taking immutability too far. <clears throat> um, but at the same time, I right. think there yeah, is something mm-hmm. to be said for the fact that God is not going to be subject to emotional change. Meaning, if if He expresses an emotion, either anger at my sin or compassion for my loss, or love toward me, if he feels any emotion toward me, it's going to be his deliberate choice to. It's not going to be that he was subject to me in some way. That mm. that Hophni yeah. and Phineas sing, single-handedly right, went out and sure. controlled right. God and, and just made and his entire God. day unhappy and just ruined his day. Right. Right. Well, well, no. Um, that's that's the idea of open theism, if I'm not mistaken, where where God essentially is just always reacting to mankind, never really knows what he's going to do, and then, oh, he sinned today, oh, mm-hmm. and then yeah, not, yeah, that's that's not accurate. But the no, opposite extreme yeah. of taking immutability too far is deism, I think that that effectively God is is not affected at all. He's passive and uninvolved. And, and I think the correct passive answer is somewhere or, in the middle, if I'm not mistaken. Um, <laughs> hey, yeah. Um, with yeah, with um, the concept of emotions, a couple things. Number one, is it an anthropomorphism? I would push back against that. Number one, I think anthropomorphism, to me, anyway, it seems to be more uh, concrete bodily, um, uh, references, but your emotions is kind of on a different level. It's, it's, um, I don't know if I'd say it's metaphysical, but it's, um, um, you know, when we say God has an arm, okay, well, he's a spirit, but to say we have emotions, um, or, 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 you know, we have emotions and therefore to say God has emotions, that's anthropomorphism. Well, or it could be because we're made in the image of God, um, and so there's a part of us that's like him. Now, where we stray again is by judging right. God by our perspective of how our emotions affect us. Blindsided. We are overcome by emotion. We are sometimes dominated yeah. by emotion. We're swayed by emotion. We're blindsided. So we we oftentimes yep. struggle to be in control of our emotions. 
well, that's not true of God. God is the perfect balance. He's the perfect example. He is the uh, He is perfect in every way. So if He has emotions, they're always perfectly in order, yeah. and uh, and He's never obviously well, we both not have, in we both control have emotions, of both God or, and mankind. Or anything else. But but we are often blindsided by ours. He is never blindsided by a change in emotion. Yeah, and I believe he deliberately right. chooses his emotional response because with. he knows what man is going to do anyway. Um, whereas we have no such privilege, <laughs> so we often are caught off guard by incoming emotions. Um, so yeah, I, I yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. Um, but yeah, I think. And by the way, to 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 be. Good completely transparent we're talking about a a doctrine that is often known as the impassibility of god um so so the idea uh, of okay, it's an old word it's not used anymore well it is but not very often the idea of being influenced by passions um that the ancient heathen gods lowercase g of the greek pantheon mm-hmm. or the roman mm-hmm. pantheon could suddenly lose their temper at you or, or suddenly they're overcome with affection that, that leads to lust. And now all of a sudden they're having an illegitimate relationship with some female God, lowercase G. Um, So, so the, the, the heathen gods were subject to passions and mood swings and fluctuations and people feared them because of this. And there was no stability in pagan religions, but God is not moved by passions. Which, yeah, which you have to say about the Greek gods and the whole uh, storyline there is it's so human. You can tell you can tell its origin, its source, because it so mirrors our own right. feelings and our own yeah. faults. And, and, and all that to say, we have to accept some form uh, of impassibility of God. We have to accept it in some form, because otherwise it makes God too human. It makes his emotions too similar to ours. Um, because I think there's great well, calm in the idea of God's impassibility, that I, I, I have all of the assurances I need that he's not going to lose his temper at me the next time I sin and remove my salvation. In addition to the whole doctrine of eternal security, I can lump onto that the impassibility of God, that he's not going to be moved so much by my sin that he's going to respond and take away my salvation like some heathen God of old. Uh, he's not that way. But that, I was just going to say, but I think we have to balance and the I, well, impassibility I, of God with the clear statements in scripture that do regard his emotion, that, that Jesus was compassionate toward the multitudes that he was moved when he saw them, uh, that he was moved when he stood over Israel. He was he wept at mm-hmm. the tomb of Lazarus. All these things were things Jesus did. And you could say, well, that was just his humanity, right? Because he is the God-man. But yet we're told that he is the express image yeah. of God. He's the reflection of God. No. Um, I think that very much mirrors mm-hmm. the compassion and emotion mm-hmm. of God. So I think the answer is somewhere in between impassibility and passability. And that's a very good point that you make about uh, Jesus' humanity being the very example. Um, and, and of course, yeah. it goes down. This is, we, We've stated this so many <laughs> times, but define the terms. Right. When somebody says, do you believe in the impassibility of God? You say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, if you define <laughs> impassibility as God has no emotions. No, 
uh, or if you define it as, uh, you know, God is not overwhelmed by and controlled by his emotions. Yes. You know, it just, it, it wholly depends on what you, what you're loading that term with one, mm -hmm. um, Parting thought on that, just for a study uh, for our listeners, is to look at the Old um, Old Testament word "repent," um, being uh, from the word "nachem," which actually has uh, is connected to the idea of comfort. Believe it or not, we say, "Oh, God repented; He changed His mind. He was gonna do this, and He said, wait a minute, I think I'll change mm -hmm. and do this.'" No, actually, it's not that. It's not like the metanoia of the. Uh, of the New Testament, it's it's a different concept, and and re you really kind of have to weave your mind into that. Really get to thinking on that, what that means. Yeah, but, that can um, be a but deep. But be careful well. how you read that concept of God repenting. Let's pause for a moment. I was wondering if um, you could read right. something for us that one of our yeah. listeners. <laughs> this was unsolicited. Sure. Unsolicited. I had no idea that James was going to do this. One of our patrons, James McGowan. He used AI or chat GPT uh -huh. to write a poem about this podcast. <laughs> Do you want to read it? <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm not read. Yeah, sure. I've not read it before. So hopefully I'm smooth enough. I hope chat GPT puts some nice meter in it. I'm just going to tell you, I'm not one of those poetry guys that, can handle the long form, almost like a sentence. I'm like, where's the poetry? I need like a really Which, uh, simple meter that's got a nice about, did you read my poem I love that kind of poetry. But, did I read that on the podcast? Salad doesn't want to be eaten. Uh, I didn't read that on the podcast? <laughs> no. Okay. Well, <laughs> no. now, now we're going to have to pause. No, not that I remember. Okay. Hold on, James. Your your Chris, chat GPT poem is coming. We have more important yep, yep. things to do at the moment. <laughs> of course, my my voice isn't great, so you'll have to forgive me. But uh, let's see here. I don't. Okay, I wrote this poem back in November. Um, my my wife went on a trip to Florida um, with the ladies from the church for a, a ladies retreat, and. My wife always includes something green with most every meal, you know, like a salad or cucumbers or green beans or whatever, yep, <laughs> which yep, we, of course, sure. consume without complaint. Um, we don't really mind it. But if she's not here to add green things, we, we don't think of it in the same way she does. We don't prioritize it the same way she does. Um, so I was driving home from work and this <laughs> yes. thought struck me. I was struck with the title first. So it's one of those poems where the title happens first and then you just write it later. The, the idea that a, a child is attempting to convince his okay. mother that the salad he's eating is, is sentient and it, it is making continued efforts to avoid being consumed. Yes. <laughs> so this, this is, this is salad doesn't want to be eaten. Okay. <clears throat> Mother, I know you want me to grow, and I'd much rather avoid a beaten. But what you don't know, and I intend to show, is that salad doesn't want to be eaten. The lettuce sticks to the plate like glue. My fork can't poke it in place. When it finally works, the lettuce jerks and flicks dressing all over my face. <laughs> Ch <laughs> cherry tomatoes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cherry tomatoes are round and bouncy. Like They'd probably best to stay great. at the store. 
They make a squeak when I try to fork them, and they dart out across the floor. Red onions can't possibly be safe, and the research (laughs) is intensive. That when things in nature don't want to be eaten, they try to smell offensive. And not to mention avocados either. They don't want to be eaten, I reckon. They secretly plotted to go from unripe to rotted in just under a second. Cucumbers, peppers, spinach, and carrots, they've (laughs) developed a secret power. They've concocted a trick where you can eat yourself sick and be hungry in less than an hour. Vegetables have a mind of their own. My logic here can't be beaten. So don't be mistaken. Just replace them with bacon because salad doesn't want to be eaten. <laughs> nice job, Tom. Wow. <laughs> yes. Well done. Okay. Let's let's yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Have you ever heard... Okay, a couple other real quick here. Have you ever heard of Don't haikus? Don't get me started on haikus. <laughs> yeah. So if you're if you're a real liter- literature buff and you like the I guess this fancy for, sort of poem, I just pulled up one online uh, that said haikus are easy, <laughs> but sometimes they don't make sense. Refrigerator. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I have your, no your concept in my mind of how a haiku became um, a structural thing or in some way enjoyable. I. I don't. <laughs> It's it, it's it sounds Eastern. I'm gonna guess maybe there's a different mindset behind it, but uh, uh, and I, that's not that's no disparaging remark. I'm just saying this: the term haiku sounds Eastern, and they yes, think differently. Hit me. So, mm. all right. So, are you ready for a Chat GPT uh, poem here? Here we go. Uh, Recent together podcast poem. Thank you, James. <coughs> In a realm of thoughts where minds take flight, two men named Daniel and Tom unite. With microphones poised and ideas aglow, they host a podcast to the world they show. Christians who ponder, who question and seek, find solace and wisdom in their voices unique. What's that mean? (laughs) Let's dive deep, they say with a knowing smile. Explore the unknown, mile after mile. It depends, their refrain, a harmonious tune, as discussions unfold neath the sun and the moon. Mysteries of faith they dissect and discuss in a world where certainty can sometimes be fuss. Daniel, thoughtful and introspective in thought, Tom, analytical ideas he has sought. Together they journey through topics profound with it depends as their compass (laughs) truth they expound. So if questions arise and beliefs intertwine, seek out these two minds, let their podcast align. For in pondering matters with insight they share, a tapestry of faith and reason is woven with Bravo. care. Bravo. Bravo. <clears throat> yep. <laughs> I, I think thank, my poem was better. GPT. <laughs> thank you, James, for doing that. That that I was that came out of left field. I Yeah. Wow. I, I asked I don't him. Know I actually had, emailed him and said what, what input in, but, uh, did you put in there good. to get it to do that? And I think he told me, but I can't remember what it was, but I don't, I don't know that he remembered fully what he put in there, but that's what it spit out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Nice. Well, great. Wow. That, that might have to like, I don't, I don't know. That might have to be framed or something. Um, 
Okay, let's see. We've ooh, we've got about uh, about five, six, seven minutes uh, to wrap this huh. up. Do you have another question you want to um, hit here? I, I suppose this one could be a few minute discussion. Um, and it's kind of along the lines okay. of what we talked about at the outset about words. Um, you're familiar with Webster's Dictionary, of course. Mm-hmm. Did you ever wonder where Webster got his definitions from? Sure. Mm-hmm. I assume, well, no. I mean, did I wonder? Well, maybe I've have a little yeah, bit. Yeah, like the, what you're the words actually mean. How do you know what they meant? His actual definitions. Like, where did he get it from? I mean, I have, mm-hmm. I have an answer. I'm just curious to see what your answer would be. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he studied them out himself and as far as like essentially formulating the, the uh, explanations himself yeah. or well, to what degree he had a reference. Largely, and him. you could pick up any dictionary and look through it and you'll kind of see this. Largely, the definitions come from common use. Like we had talked about the word dude, right? Um, we talked about the word will and would, mm-hmm. right? Meaning kind of the same thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's really nowhere else to get definitions from um, other than a combination of the structure of the word and common use, like how it's actually used in society. And I think that a mistake that is easy to make is thinking that the, you know, prefix, suffix, root structure will always make the word mean the same thing. That's actually not true. Um, and you can see that in not, not, in, mm-hmm. not in the mm-hmm. English language just only, but in every language, including the biblical languages, um, that, that word structure is not like math, where it always means the same thing. Words are used differently over time, and they're sometimes adopted to be used in a completely different way. Um, And the way that definitions are often discerned is looking at how they're most commonly used. And isn't that how we do our Bible study? When we look up a word in the original language, one of the first things we do is we look and see all the different places that it's used (laughs) and how it's used there. And that is how we sort of derive what the word actually means. And sometimes the usage of the word actually trumps the root of the word. (laughs) And I'm trying to remember an example off the top of my head, I can't. But I I guess all that to say, um, there, there are fallacies of interpretation in which just looking at the root of the word, we think, oh, well, the word has always meant that and it always will mean that. And it could lead us to the wrong conclusion. We have to look at how the word was actually being used when it was used. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of take a, I think there's going to be a hybrid um, to some degree um, with, um, you know, with Bible study is to realize that a lot of times the evolution of the word um, mm-hmm. was, was that, but it's had an origin so even the common usage uh, well, sure. has a connection to, in some way, that origin of use. And so um, I've seen the illustration of, of, of dust before. 
uh, small, small particulate, you know, matter we call dust. We dust the shelves. Uh, and then, uh, you know, something else like if, uh, if I would say that my friend in high school was so good at the piano, but that by his senior year, he right. dusted me, <laughs> meaning he blew me away. Right. Um, and I've seen, seen the illustration. I don't remember all the details of it, but the idea that, okay, here's like four or five different uses of the word dust, but they all have this in common. Okay. Well, that's where the root concept, that's sort of the, the root or the uh, stem from which these various flowers grew because one took this root idea and eventually expressed it in this social context. One took it over here in this context and developed it in this way. Um, yeah. And so it's still helpful for me to look at the actual etymology of the word and say how it broke down, what originally the concept was, was this. And then I can see, oh, wow, that's really neat. This is the concept yeah. that underpins the way that it was used in the passage. And I think people need to be, and this is, I caution, um, if I could put it this way, younger Bible students, um, uh, and I'm not just talking about Bible college students, but just people who want to who want to dig into scripture to say, now, just be careful when you look into Strong's and you look up, oh, this word, what's, what is, what's the definition of this word? Well, they'll choose as the definition, like you say, the 15 uses of the word throughout scripture. And it's, and it's all these different things. And then you might, you might think, <laughs> oh, well, I could pick one out. Oh, that one will really preach, you know, or that one. I like this definition, so I'll stick it in the, in the passage because that's one that Strong's gave. Well, what Strong's is doing is telling you that, yeah, Strong's is telling you the different ways that it was used. My, my, my uh, advice to them is to say, now, stop and look over all of those usages and say, what's the yeah. common denominator? How are they related? What central concept connects them right. to and, give and an I agree idea 100% of the base or the root idea there. of the word. But I think what I'm pointing out is slightly different, where mm -hmm. someone will look at the common use of a word, and they'll see how it's commonly used. They'll find the common denominator, but they will ignore that and instead look at the root of the word, and they'll force <laughs> the meaning of the root of the word onto the interpretation of it in every sense. In fact, this has become common mm. enough that it has become known, at least in Old Testament study, as the Hebrew root fallacy, where you force the meaning of the word onto it by deriving where the root originally came from and assuming that like math, the root has never changed. But that's just not how language works. We have to look at how the word is used over and over again to derive what its meaning is. Anyway, <laughs> um, that's that's interesting. I would um, I would want to do some study on that because I wonder if uh, just just wondering by the the title of the fallacy, if it's ever taken too far, uh, trying to say, you know, that it's well, disconnected no, no, now it from doesn't. its root. And I would kind of push back against that to say that at some point it can mean something totally, totally different than what it originally meant. Well, <laughs> it may seem like quite a... Wait, yeah, quite sure. A, there'll always might, be a relationship. Kind of like how we trace the word dude through multiple iterations in English to a completely different meaning that it had originally. <laughs> it is possible, mm -hmm. and you have to acknowledge that it's possible. Not, not that it's always going to happen, but it is possible for a word to completely flip in its meaning and usage over time because of how language changes. So you can trace the original roots of words 
back, you can see the connection. You can, the etymologists do this. They'll see the connection of a word and find out how it became what it is. But that, that doesn't discount the fact that it can happen, that a word can mean completely different mm-hmm. things than it used to mean. Like the English word let, right? For example, uh, that we find in the New Testament didn't mean the mm-hmm, same thing mm-hmm. 400 years ago that it means now. In fact, it meant opposite things. The same thing can happen in other languages as well. And we have to acknowledge that it does happen. So I don't think that anyone who uh, asserts not to my knowledge, uh, anyone who asserts that the Hebrew root fallacy exists and happens, they're not saying that there's never a connection between the word today and what the root originally was. There is a connection. It's just they're acknowledging that language can change over time. And those who don't acknowledge that Mm -hmm. are guilty of a fallacy known as the Hebrew root fallacy. But anyway, I don't want to get too far afield in that. I just thought it was interesting to, because when you think about it, where did Webster get his definitions from? Well, largely from looking at the structure of words, plus how they were used when they were spoken. And that's still how people get definitions today. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, and and then probably one thing, and maybe this kind of ties in with what you're saying, how it's used uh, is also the, um, and I don't, maybe I'm using this word wrong, the etymology of it. it's like here was the original word and then in french it was this and then in latin it was this and then in english it was this and sort of tracing it through languages since obviously languages are borrowed you know we have a lot of you know words with latin or greek you know or since america especially the melting pot has a lot of words that are translate that are really borrowed from another language what do they mean there that's interesting maybe want to do some homework too and if you can think of examples of words, not just in English, but in any language or biblical languages, even words that now are used in a different way today than they were when they were originally used and see if you can trace the relationship between them. If you come up with any examples, email them to us at reason together podcast at gmail.com. All right. I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, transition into the uh, after show uh, at this point, but thank you again for joining us, in, and uh, we hope that you have uh, a relaxing and refreshing uh, holiday time now. And I say this because maybe if Christmas has just passed and you're listening, but you're looking forward to maybe another day off at New Year's, which why they call that a holiday, honestly, I think. I don't know, it's just a cover. But anyway, um, hope, hopefully during this vacation time, um, you, uh, you have a good time of refreshing and a good time with your family. The Lord bless you. And uh, thanks again for listening. We're encouraging balance, developing perspective, and connecting faith to practice. This is Reason Together.